0: Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men coming up the aisle right now with Bibles, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying today for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from God to you today. Romans chapter 8, pick things up in verse 28. And Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he, that is God the Father, predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also glorified, or justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you, as we always do, for the privilege of opening up your word, because we always feel a sense of privilege. We think about where our lives would be without its washing, without its perspective, its empowering, its equipping, Lord, within our lives. We're so grateful for this book and the living book that it is within our lives. We pray that you would bless our time now as we continue our worship of you and the study of your word, that your spirit would be strong and present in our hearts and you would teach us what is uh, on your heart and your mind through these verses that you would plant them deeply into our lives and and into our personal relationship with you. We pray that you would help us as we study now not to just study uh, a theological truth but to absorb all of this, Lord, in the context of our very prized uh, personal relationship with you. And we ask for this work of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The context of all that Paul writes in the latter half of uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, really from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 39, uh, the context of all uh, of what he writes here is suffering. Uh, the suffering that is born out of the sin uh, and the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden. And the suffering and a fallenness that has been introduced into all of creation. It has been introduced into every single uh, human being who has uh, ever been born. And it is also, uh, this suffering, a part of the life of every single Christian as well. And at this particular point in And what Paul is laying out here in verses 29 and 30, the Holy Spirit now proceeds to assure us as Christians concerning the absolute sureness and the absolute security of our salvation as Christians. In other words, life can be very, 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 very hard uh, in this world, and even especially uh, for Christians As we face all of the the groanings, all of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the consequences of the fall, we face as Christians exactly the way that everybody else in the world uh, faces them. But then we also experience difficulties and trials that others do not. Uh, Persecution for our faith, uh, rejection for our faith, spiritual warfare, Uh, We experience the tremendous amount of resources, heart, mind, and soul, and strength that is required for us in order to be faithful to God, to go against the moral and the spiritual uh, streams and tides uh, of this world. And because we can face so much suffering and trial in life, God doesn't want a single one of us as Christians to, on top of all of that, to then have any doubts or any concerns about the sureness or the security of our salvation. He doesn't want a single Christian wondering whether we are saved. He doesn't want us wondering if we're going to make it all the way through this life and then one day into uh, the glory of heaven. And I, speaking for myself, but I think I speak for most of us as well, I think it would be simply unbearable. To carry the load that we carry as Christians, the load that everyone else carries, the load that we uniquely carry as Christians in this world, and then to live in the midst of all of this suffering and trial, uh, and then be wondering throughout all of it about the security or the sureness of our salvation. I mean, that would be uh, the proverbial straw that would break the camel's back if we did not possess that confidence. But sometimes the suffering can become so great that we're tempted to e- wonder whether we're even saved. Or sometimes the trials and the difficulties can become so-, so great even in our lives as Christians that we can feel as if God has abandoned us or he has displeased with us in some way. And so what Paul does here now is he encourages us in these verses concerning the absolute security of our salvation as Christians. And how Paul puts it, you simply can't put it any more thoroughly or any more forcefully than he does here. I want you to notice for a moment in verses 29 and 30 that Paul uses five great words to describe our salvation in the verses. He uses the word foreknew. He uses the word predestined. He uses the word called. He uses the word justified. He uses the word uh, glorified. In other words, because of our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, each of these things is an accomplished fact within our lives as Christians, And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but the point I want to make right now is that while this passage that we're looking at and studying this morning is deeply theological, there is no touching bottom in terms of what's uh, contained in these three verses. But the point that Paul is making here is a very, very simple one. He is encouraging us in in God's absolute assurance of our salvation. And it's important to uh, not lose sight of the fact that that's the great thing uh, that he is communicating through these, these verses, the greatest thing. It's important, I think, to notice the first word of verse 29, and it's the word for. And Paul's use of the word for tells us that verses 29 and 30, in these verses, Paul is continuing his thought of verse 28, where he expressed God's promise to us as Christians to work all things together for good in our lives. And where in verse 28 Paul proceeded to distinguish Christians from Everyone else in the world on the basis of just two simple phrases. Two simple phrases that he uses uh, un- uh, causes us to recognize that Christians are unique in the entire, uh, entire world because the description is unique to them. He describes us first of all as those who love God. And then, second, those who are the called according to God's purposes. And it, is, it really is a marvel that Paul doesn't need a big treatise or 400 pages uh, to uh, describe uh, the, the the great gulf that exists between a person who is a Christian and not a Christian in the world. He just encapsulates it in 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 two uh, two phrases and uh, uh, and powerful phrases at, at that. You notice that they christians are the called according to god's purposes in other words first and foremost they uh, the christian is someone who heard god's call to salvation a call to receive the forgiveness of sins from god uh, they are someone who has heard the gospel heard god's offer of salvation and then obeyed that call By confessing their sin to God, acknowledging God's assessment of us, and acknowledging our need to be saved. Our sin is the reason we need to be saved. And then that willingness to repent of our sins, turning from our sins, being willing and putting our faith in Jesus Christ to forsake all sin that would lead us in a different direction uh, from the life that he has for us. All selfism and selfishness that would accomplish the same within our lives. And then trusting in Jesus himself personally for the forgiveness of Our sins, and when a person does that at that very moment, they are born again. And the Holy Spirit comes into their lives and they now begin a personal relationship with God. That is what it means supremely to be the called according to God's purposes. The single great purpose and plan that he has for every single person in the world is that we would be saved, forgiven of our sins uh, uh, through Jesus Christ and entering into a relationship with him, the very relationship that we've been created for. He further describes the Christian as those who love God, and the idea is that we love God on his terms. It's interesting that the Greek word that Paul uses to describe a Christian's love for God here is the word agape. You know, we might expect that he would use the Greek word phileo, which speaks of an affectionate love or a warm uh, 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 kind of uh, emotional love for God, but it doesn't. He talks about Christians being those who, uh, who agape God. And the Greek word agape is the very highest word uh, for love in the Bible. And most often it's used uh, to uh, describe God's love for us. But here Paul uses it to describe the love that we're to have for God. And agape speaks of a love that is self-sacrificial, It is completely other-centered. Agape love always expresses itself in doing what is best for the other person in the relationship. And Jesus told us plainly uh, what that agape love is to look like in a relationship with him. When in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, "'If you love me,' speaking to disciples,' If you love me, and he uses the word agape there, if you agape me, then keep my commandments. And he's describing there the the highest expression of our love for him as Christians is our obedience to his word. And if that isn't there, then no other expressions of love toward him are are meaningful at all. It doesn't mean that uh, a Christian is perfect in this regard. It doesn't mean that we will never uh, sin or we will never violate one of uh, God's commands. We will do that, and we will do that uh, continually before we get into heaven. One day we won't, but it doesn't mean that we we, we camp in, that, in that, that place. So we won't be perfect until we're in heaven, but it does not mean that our Christian lives are to be uh, marked by anything less than a continual growth in Christ likeness in terms of our morality, in terms of our spirituality, uh, in terms of our character, uh, in terms of our living, in terms of our doing, in terms of our uh, speaking, uh, that being conformed into the image Uh, of Christ and all of this happening by the presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives who provides us with the will, the desire to live this kind of life and then the power to live uh, just such a life. I think it's very important to realize and it is vital that we do not uh, misunderstand this at all. But Paul is not saying in verse 28, do this and God will work all things together for your good. He is not saying, be faithful to God's call upon your life and love him, and and he will then work all things together for good in your life. This is not a conditional promise. It's not not an if uh, promise. It is a because promise. What Paul is doing very simply is he's giving us a very bare-bones description of what it means to be a Christian. And because we are Christians... Uh, By God's definition, this confidence is ours. But this beautiful, holy description of what it means to be a Christian, they are those who love God and are called according to his his purposes. We really should allow it to challenge any of us as Christians this morning who are living far below that standard. If I have settled into a relationship with God in which he does all of the giving, and he does all of the sacrificing. He does all of the loving. I reciprocate nothing in return uh, in terms of obedience or in terms of prayer or in terms of of uh, worship at all. Yes, we want to be absolutely secure in God's love for us. And I don't think we can ever overemphasize that that great truth. But it's also important to stop. And to examine our own love for him. What am I bringing to the relationship in order to make this relationship a blessing to him as well as to me? And what I love about what Paul lays out here is, is he's got this beautiful first century, but it should be every century, this amazingly high view of Christianity. That he describes it here. Christians are people who love God and they are called according to his purposes. And it's very important to maintain this very high view and this very high understanding of Christianity in every age. But even more specifically to hold that high view in our own individual personal relationship with God. Now, let's notice Paul's description of our salvation here in verses 29 and 30. And as we mentioned earlier, Paul uses four, five great words to uh, describe our salvation. Uh, For new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. They are not they are individually five things, but they are not independent of one another. They are five words that Paul uses in order to describe a single great thing. And the single great thing that he is describing here is our salvation. And all five of these words are true of every single Christian. We are foreknown by God, we are predestined by God, we are called by God, we are justified by God, and we are glorified by God. And it's important to realize that our salvation goes way, way beyond simply the forgiveness of our sins when we became a Christian, as wonderful as that that is. Notice first that Paul says whom God foreknew in verse 29. And Paul declares that our salvation began with the foreknowledge of God. Now, those verses, along with chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans are really among uh, the most debated and the most discussed among theologians uh, in all of of the Bible. And they have been for 2,000 years. And what they deal with is uh, man's free will in his own salvation and God's predestination of man to salvation. And we will look to spend a little bit of time on this when we introduce chapters 9 through 11 in a few weeks. But this morning, I need to touch on it at least a little bit in these verses because there's no escaping it. Paul uses the word here, and the implications are so great uh, within these, these three verses of 28, 29 and uh, and and 30. Uh so if we get into kind of uh, the high weeds today uh, for a moment or two, uh, just remember if I lose you a little bit uh, in the next couple of minutes, these verses are written with the purpose of assuring us as Christians of the security of our salvation. The meaning of the word foreknew that Paul uses in verse 29, uh, the Greek word that he uses, is very, very straightforward. It is the word prognosko, and it's made up of two words, pro, which means before, and gnosko, which means, uh, pro meaning before, and gnosko meaning uh, to know. And it is to know about an event before it happens. And I want you to notice that Paul begins His description of our salvation, of man's salvation here, with God's foreknowledge. Our salvation did not begin with our justification or with the forgiveness of our sins. It did not begin with our calling, the moment that we heeded God's call to be saved and we trusted in Jesus as a result. It did not even begin with God's predestination, with God predestining us to be saved. It began with God's foreknowledge. And so we ask ourselves, what did God foreknow about me that then led him uh, to his predestination of me uh, uh, to salvation? And to me, and that's a, that's a qualifying statement, by the way, uh, to me, the simple answer is found in the fact that in his foreknowledge, he knew that one day I would choose him, and thus he chose me and predestined me to be saved. And for me, it is the only explanation of this foreknowledge that does no harm to the two great truths concerning our salvation. Number one, that we as human beings have a free will to choose whether we will be saved or not, and we have a responsibility to choose to be saved. And not only do we possess the freedom of choice in our salvation, but God then holds us eternally responsible for the choice that we make. And it is this view that that holds uh, and And uh, does no harm to the great truth of human responsibility and free will in personal salvation. But that it also upholds the other great truth and that God has also predestined us to salvation. To understand that God's predestination comes out of his foreknowledge. He has predestined mankind to salvation based upon his foreknowledge of what we would do with his invitation to be saved when we were ultimately born into human history. And I know that this view is in conflict with what is called Calvinism or Reformed uh, theology, Uh, and and, and the Reformed uh, uh, Christian or the Reformed theologian uh, seems to be convinced that in, in all of my reading. Uh, for decades now, that for a person to even receive God's gift of salvation as an act of their will, that somehow that diminishes the glory that God alone is to receive for our salvation. And, and this is a uniform view of, uh, in Reformed theology. But I personally fail to see how receiving a gift as a gift indicates any kind of merit on the person receiving the gift. It is merely to receive the gift. There is no earning or merit or works involved in receiving a free gift. And Jesus certainly didn't seem to think so. In John chapter 6, A group of people come up to him, and they said, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And they're anticipating that he's going to give them a list of ten things or a hundred things that they need to do or commandments that they need to keep so they can be confident that one day they will end up in heaven. And then Jesus answered, we're told, and said to them, this is the work of God. I mean, his terminology is, is wild. It, it, clearly, he's not so uptight about uh, uh, the, the terminology on this. He actually uses wrong terminology, if you want to get technical on it, in terms of a Reformed reform perspective on salvation. But he says, Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And personally, I fail to understand how it is that if God provides mankind with the gospel, he provides us with the good news of salvation. He provides us with his offer of salvation by trusting in his Son, And he then invites us to receive that salvation. That when we do so, and when I am saved strictly at his invitation and on his terms, that that can in any way diminish him or his glory in any way. It is beyond me to understand it. To me, the exact opposite has occurred. I have honored him in the greatest way that a human being can honor the true and the living God. And that is by obeying him and putting my faith in the Savior that he has provided to me for my salvation. I have honored him in doing this and honoring him and in in glorifying him in the ultimate means by which I am able to do as an individual uh, human being. We are not earning or initiating salvation uh, by simply responding to God's initiative in offering salvation to us through faith in his son. Through the years, and no pastor escapes this and wouldn't want to escape it, That no pastor escapes uh, being forced to dig maybe even more deeply than they want to into the subject of man's free will related to salvation and God's uh, predestination. And that means not only reading and listening to people that agree with you on whatever position you hold, but listening to those who disagree with a position that you might take. And then to listen to the very best among those who who argue uh, the opposite side. And I have listened to a mountain of, uh, of teaching and reading by uh, Reformed teachers through the uh, almost 35 years of being a pastor here in this church in, in Modesto. And I've done so in an attempt to try and understand their position. I'm just one guy trying to understand the Bible uh, and and try to understand uh, why their position that our salvation begins with God's uh, predestination and and a, a position that I believe ends up neglecting and ignoring what the Bible teaches about human free will and human responsibility concerning our own salvation. And recently, wanting to be fresh upon, uh, related to all of this, knowing that we were coming into these three verses in Romans chapter 8, but knowing that Romans 9 through 11 are looming in in the future here. I've spent dozens of hours just re-listening and examining and, uh, and studying related uh, to, to all of this. And, I, and specifically, I re-listened to uh, several audio tapes on these three verses alone by a, a very, very gifted pastor and Bible teacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Tremendous, tremendous uh, man. He, he taught the book of Romans, and I think he, he, he did, it took him 360 Sundays to get through it. Uh, and, and now he's in heaven. But he, he's a very respected and key spokesman and advocate for Reformed theology. So I said, I want to reexamine how he tackled this uh, this uh, for new here in these in, in this this verse. And he dealt with this issue of foreknowledge by choosing to interpret this word foreknowledge as meaning foreordained. And his reasoning was this. He reasoned that what Paul is talking about here is not merely God's foreknowledge, and because if it did, then it would allow people like me to declare that in order to fully respect human responsibility in a person's salvation, as well as God's predestination, it requires that God's predestination concerning salvation has to come out of his foreknowledge. But, but instead he declared it is not talking about his foreknowledge, it is talking about God's foreordination. And that's something entirely different. He declared that our salvation is not merely foreknown by God, but that it is foreordained by God. That it is something that he has determined on his own, completely independent of us. And he does an interesting thing to try and support his argument. And what he does is he goes to several passages in the New Testament where this word, uh, this the this foreknew, but in the, the original language, the Greek, the prognosko, he goes to the various places in, in the New Testament uh, where those words are used and are uh, translated for ordained as opposed to uh, foreknown. And uh, those verses are Romans chapter 11, verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, uh, verse 2. And, and this Greek word uh, translated for new here in verse 29 is used six other times in the New Testament. And indeed, for those six times, it, it is translated foreordained. And the idea that he is putting forth was that we should then automatically recognize the usage of the word no" to mean foreordain than in all of the other places that it's used in the New Testament. We should automatically uh, give it that same meaning and also give it automatically that same meaning in verse 29. And to recognize that foreknew is not really foreknew, but God is actually trying to communicate uh, "for uh, ordained." But the argument is absolutely unconvincing to me, and it actually feels very forced to me. Because it still leaves two of the other six occurrences in the New Testament meaning for new. And uh, just as it's used here, meaning for new. And so we're going to talk about seven uses of a word in the New Testament. And uh, four of them are translated for knowledge or for ordain, and one of them is, and three of them are are to to foreknow. Four out of seven—that's a bare uh, majority. That's not a compelling argument for me, when all translations of an individual word uh, are also to take the context of the verse into account, and just because. In four verses, it's properly translated foreordained. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be properly translated foreknown elsewhere. After all, that is the actual meaning of the word. And and, And it should only be dislodged from its actual meaning, from the strictness of its actual meaning, when the Bible passage demands it, which it does not. In verse 29, it makes perfect sense as it's translated uh, here for uh, new. Another major uh, issue that I have with Lloyd-Jones' view, and it is probably the greater issue with his view, and again, I pointed out with great respect toward him as a brother and a saint and and a Bible teacher, but I've got a congregation of my own to tend to and to help try and understand uh, the Bible as well. And, and the major issue that I have with his view is that if the word translated uh there in verse 29 really means foreordained, as he is declaring it uh, uh, to be, then we have now crowded into the second word in the progression, which is predestined. It would have Paul saying virtually the same thing twice. When there is distinction about all five of these words that he uses, why would Paul use the word foreknowledge to speak of foreordination when he is going to fully cover that and the second word in the the progression, predestination? It would be an an absolute redundancy. So for me, no. It seems that to me that Paul was using the word foreknowledge to mean in this context exactly what it means in its purest form, and that is to know before, and that in doing so, Paul was clearly implying that God's predestination, uh, the next truth in his progression, that it comes out of the foreknowledge of God, which I would contend in the light of uh, innumerable numbers of Bible passages that speak to man's free will in choosing whether to be saved or not, speak specifically of his foreknowledge concerning what each of us would one day do with his offer of salvation. Now again, admittedly, we are taking the lawnmower into some very, very uh, deep weeds, as the old saying goes. Some of you will be relieved. Uh, I am as well, uh, to realize that understanding all of this perfectly is not uh, required for salvation. And so we've got to breathe uh, a sigh of relief. We'll get into all of this a little bit more in a single study that I will uh, attempt to do in introducing chapters 9 uh, through 11 when we get to that in in a number of weeks. Notice the second word that Paul uses to describe our salvation, and that is predestination. We were predestined by God, verse 29. The Greek word predestined is a compound of of two Greek words meaning pre- And number one, and then second, determine. And thus, the word speaks of a predetermined destination. And it is simply the description of the destiny that God has determined for the people he has foreknown. Uh, For those he knew would choose him, that is, Christians. Predestination is only spoken of in the Bible uh, related uh, to salvation, related to Christians. God does not predestine people to hell. But again, we must not start our discussion of our salvation with God's predestination, that uh, but with God's foreknowledge, because that is precisely where, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul starts. And because when we do uh, begin with foreknowledge, it does not nullify man's free will to trust in the gospel, his responsibility to do so, and then to be held responsible by God uh, for the decision that we make with God's offer of salvation. And as I read and understand the Bible, or at least try to, it would be more than illogical. To believe that God unilaterally chooses who will be saved and not saved. And to do so independent of the individuals involved. And then to hold them personally and eternally responsible. Not for a decision they made, but for a decision that he made. I fail to see how this glorifies God. And in fact, I think it reflects, in my opinion, very poorly upon God if it were not true. And I think it doesn't take into account the whole counsel uh, of God on the subject. So often in the Reformed circles, there's the, the acknowledgement that God loves all people, but then he only calls some to be saved, and the others can't be saved. So it's like God, I'm glad you loved me, but what good does it do me? So I get to be eternally separated from you in judgment, and somehow the fact that you loved me, but the love didn't translate into calling me, is somehow to bless me and somehow be a, a, a proper reflection upon God. Now, I don't believe it. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't see it at all. And so we were foreknown and predestined by God. But we see further that we were also called by God, verse 30. And the invitation to be called, uh, uh, the invitation to be saved has gone out into the entire world. It's called the general call of God to salvation. For 2,000 years, the gospel, God's invitation to be saved through faith in His Son has gone out uh, to every man, woman, and child in, in the whole world. God calling upon people in that gospel to trust in Jesus and be saved. This uh, That general call goes out to everyone. But because the call that's referred to here in verse 30 ends in justification and in glorification, it refers to those who hear the gospel's call to be saved and then recognize the personal witness of the Holy Spirit to that gospel, to that uh, truth, in their heart, in their mind, and then they obey this uh, drawing of the Holy Spirit, and they put their faith in that gospel for salvation. And that is the calling that is true uniquely of Christians. Every Christian has experienced and obeyed the general and the personal call of God to be saved. Bill MacDonald, a friend of mine now in heaven, by anything he's ever written, but he wrote concerning this. He said, everyone who was predestined in eternity was also called in time. It's very well put. Paul goes on further in verse 30 to say that we've been justified by God. And I'm not going to spend any significant time on this because we've already done so in studying justification in chapters 3, 4, and 5, in studying uh, the book of, uh, uh, of Romans uh, already. And, uh, but to say enough to say that this speaks to the fact that as Christians, God has not only taken away the guilt, and the penalty associated with our sins, but that he has further clothed us with righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ, so that now and forever when he looks at us as Christians, he does not see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he sees us justified, just as if we had never sinned. And because of our faith in Jesus and that righteousness being put to our account, we now have a righteous standing before God. And then finally he declares in verse 30, We have been glorified by God. Paul does not say that one day as Christians we will be glorified. I would have been happy if that's all he said in this verse. But he doesn't say that. He says something superior uh, to that. He says that we have been, past tense, glorified, meaning that our salvation is so sure and so complete that God already sees us in heaven. He already sees us as past tense glorified, Uh, us being glorified and in the context of, of His glory within heaven. And you simply cannot state the security of our salvation any more strongly than Paul does there. There's a a highly esteemed Scottish theologian and preacher of the late 1800s and the early 1900s by the name of James Denny, and he rightly declared of this phrase, uh, speaking of, uh, of glorified, he said, "'The tense of the last word is amazing.'" It is the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. And that is absolutely true. It is the capstone of this passage, emphasizing the absolute security of our salvation. It is so sure that God already sees every Christian in the glory of heaven. And Paul spoke of this elsewhere, famously in the book of Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who are Christians here this morning, this is Paul's description of the absolute sureness and solidness of our salvation. And again... Above the depths of the theology of this, again, he writes it supremely so that as we face all of the ups and downs, all of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the hardship, all of the spiritual warfare and persecutions that are a Christian's portion in this life, and no matter what you are facing today or any Christian has ever faced uh, In in the world or in human history, Paul doesn't want a single Christian doubting the surety of our salvation as a result of the great uh, difficulties and trials that we can face in the suffering of this world. And then wondering, has God abandoned me? or wondering if we're really saved, or wondering if God cares, or wondering if we're going to make it through this life and into the glory of heaven. And that's what he's communicating within the verses, to reassure us of how rock-solid, how past tense each of those five words are related to our salvation. And we say praise the Lord for that uh, today. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, God bless you. Uh, It's quite a sermon for you to sit through. Uh, But for you, uh, and how do you know where you fit into all of this? And you look at it and say, my head is spinning. I I, I don't know how I fit into this foreknowledge, this predestination, this calling, this justified and, and, and glorified. And here's how it fits for you. This morning, just simply, as an act of your will, under the influential drawing of the Holy Spirit around your life, this morning, choose to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then you will know that God has chosen you. And it is as simple as that. Jesus' invitation to you, It is an invitation to the entire world. It is an invitation to every single human being. But it is an invitation to you individually and personally as you sit here uh, today. And Jesus' invitation to you is this. For God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, should believe in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you would like to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the receiving of everlasting life, to begin a relationship with God, the very relationship that you've been created for, without which nothing in life can satisfy and nothing in life can make sense. And if you'd like to make that decision and honor God and bless God in this way, this morning, then there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to do just that. It's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving, because someone other than us did all of the heavy lifting related to our salvation And that someone is Jesus Christ himself so that we could then receive it simply as a free gift from God today. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we are humbled If you're concerned for us, we are humbled by the shepherd that you are. We are humbled as we read these verses 18 through 39 in Romans chapter 8 and how you understand the difficult context that we find ourselves in in this very, very fallen world your understanding of all of the hardship and suffering and persecution and rejection that we can face in this life for for simply being born into it and then for knowing you and being faithful to you. And how you would look down, Lord, through all of the ages and into this room and into our moment in human history and into every moment as well and to realize that the one thing you don't want any of us doubting in the midst of all of the confusion and hardship is our salvation. And how great its anchoring in time past and how perfect and strong its anchor is infinitely into the future. And Lord, as a simple little body of Christians, at 4300 American Avenue here this morning, We just simply say thank you. Thank you for providing us with so sure a salvation. Thank you for caring enough to make it indisputably clear to us. We bless you. We're grateful for your Father's heart toward us. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and walking with you. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.